and welcome to our NC Talks podcast. Today, I talk to the renowned neuroscientist Michael Merzenich, a professor emeritus of the University of California, San Francisco, following his recent receipt of the Kavli Prize for Neuroscience. Dr. Merzenich earned his bachelor's degree at the University of Portland and his PhD at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, Maryland. He then completed a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Wisconsin in Madison before becoming a professor at the University of California, San Francisco, where he retired as Francis A. Soy Professor and co-director of the Keck Center for Integrative Neuroscience in 2007. He was elected to the National Academy of Sciences in 1999 and the Institute of Medicine in 2008. Dr. Merzenich has been a leader in the field of brain plasticity for the past few decades, defining the critical period of child development and adult plasticity, as well as being instrumental in the development of multiple brain training programs. In this NZ Talks podcast, Dr. Merzenich tells us more about the history and progression of the field of brain plasticity, and we discuss the clinical implications for brain training programs. Thanks a lot for joining us today. Great to have you speaking to us. To start off, obviously recently you received the Kavli Prize for Neuroscience um, because of the influence of your work on brain plasticity. So how does it feel to be identified as such an influential scientist? Um, and did you always believe that your work would have this kind of impact on the field? Well, uh, Alice, it's nice to be with you. And uh, of course it's an honour. It's really a team award because, you know, contemporary neuroscience, like almost all science, is, is team science. And, I, and you know, I receive it. I'll receive this award on behalf of the many people mm-hmm. and the thousands of patients and, and volunteers that have participated in, in the human extensions of our studies. I, 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 I have believed for a long time that this research area, that the, that the appreciation of, adult, of lifelong plasticity is transformative both for uh, neurological med- and psychiatric medicine and for, for how we think about ourselves and our humanity. So uh, in a way, it's been a little bit discouraging to me that it's taken so long, that it's such a slow uh, along and, 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 and elaborate process of education, especially in the medical community. Uh, but uh, it's, it's, it's fabulous that they finally got around to acknowledging it, the importance of it in this, in, this, in this way. Yeah. So like you say, obviously it's taken, it's taken a while for this to take hold a bit more. But what was the general opinion right. on brain plasticity when you first started research in this area personally? Well, when we first published our first studies, uh, the, the response was <laughs> bewildering. Uh, people didn't believe it. I mean, we would receive reviews back in the initial papers saying, well, this is amazing, but it can't be true. Uh, you know, I, I, people, you know, I, when I talked about it in scientific meetings in the early period, you know, people would stand up in the audience, you know, Nobel laureates, important people, authorities in science, and say, this is unbelievable. This can't be right. So there was great skepticism. But Alice, what, what people don't fully appreciate is that All along, there had been a long history of studies that indicated that the brain was plastic, that it changed, could change, was changing as a function of how you engaged it across lifetime. It was the predominant view in the early part of the 20th century. And also there was a long history of studies in in physiological psychology where scientists had repeatedly shown that when you you engaged an animal in classical or Pavlovian conditioning, 
you could see changes that clearly related to the growth of the association between a stimulus and a reward. Mm. But in the mainstream of neurology, in the mainstream of neuroscience, this was not valued, appreciated, understood, and it wasn't really incorporated into their mindset. And they developed this very, very wrong idea across the latter half of the 20th century that the brain, in fact, was aplastic beyond early childhood. And that was so totally wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, of course, there was a reaction to it. Yeah, of course. And um, so how, how do you think things have progressed from that point? Slowly. <laughs> Slowly. Well, first of all, on the science side, there, we have we've grown a massive body of science which demonstrates the fact that plasticity is a lifelong, you know, the brain is fundamentally plastic for life, and it's changed as a function of how we engage it. And wherever we acquire or improve any ability, you know, we've shown, many people have shown repeatedly, that's accounted for by the revision, by the remodeling of the circuitry and the physical structure of our brain. Mm -hmm. So the fact that plasticity has been demonstrated by a massive body of science that, that, that overwhelmingly supports this, that demonstrates to us that this is, this is the essence of what we are and how we evolve in our powers across our lifetime. And, and and also, it's we've had this really uh, wonderful demonstration that plasticity is not just a unidirectional, does not just involve unidirectional processes, but in fact, it's bidirectional. That plasticity is very much in play when we deteriorate in, in in the face of neurological illness or disease. The brain is basically changing itself to try to sustain control. And understanding that plasticity is substantially underlying the expressions of neurological and psychiatric illness is almost as important as understanding that it, that it, that it, that it, that it accounts for our growing powers as we develop our skills and abilities across the course of our life. So uh, there's been a wonderful, uh, wonderful explosion on the science side. But on the other hand, on the medical side, there's been relatively still relatively constrained, still relatively limited exploitation of the science uh, for human good in, on the practical side of, of medicine and, and, and therapy. Yeah, so on that translational side of things, a lot of your work is obviously focused on trying to make this translation between the basic neuroscience which we have and how it can affect uh, treatments for these various different brain disorders. Um, so how has neuroplasticity affected the treatment of neurological conditions today, um, if it has done, and how else do you hope that it will? Well, first of all, in practical terms, it's been very limited. I mean, the strategy, we developed strategies that apply to improving the faculties of a child in school that do improve their, 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 their abilities as it relates to their academic performance and their abilities, operational abilities in life at a young age. And we've trained about six million children. Uh, but that's a tiny, that's a tiny, tiny fraction of the number of children that could benefit by the use of the kind of tools that we've developed. Of course, other individuals, other, uh, there have been other efforts to, to engage, to apply these principles to those uses as well. But still, you could say that the, the impact in, in human societies and human individuals has been limited. And so, too, on the medical side. You know, we've demonstrated now in about 20 different clinical indications 
that this is a form of treatment. This does represent a form of treatment. But we have a very complicated process of actually delivering this into the medical realm. And it's still been used in only a very limited way across the world as a form of treatment, even though we can demonstrate, we have demonstrated over and over and over again its values from the point of view of improving the operational abilities of someone who's struggling. So uh, on the one hand, you could say that we have a we have a research domain that's absolutely chock full of promise and demonstration that it's going to be, be a big thing. But relatively little practical translation, very few neurologists, very few psychiatrists actually apply this. And so one of the problems that we face, you know, my, one of my main goals is to try with the, in a careful scientific and, and uh, academic way to deliver this into the public. Why do you think that um, potentially this translation has been so limited and why the hesitancy for neurologists, for example, to take up this kind of method of treatment potentially? I don't want to insult the field, but it, the, the primary reason is because they don't really understand the neurology, that is to say the neuroscience. And, and so it, it, and because it is, you know, people have been classically trained in medical science as it relates to neurology in the brain, to think about the brain as a kind of elaborate chemical machine, and to think of the powers and, and the endowments and the abilities to either relate to the genetic resources that you, that apply to the individual in front of you, or to how the brain has been wounded or damaged or physically injured. Failure to understand that plasticity is contributing powerfully and continually to the expression of illness, that the brain doesn't just sit there in the face of that injury or in the face of that growing or progressive problem, but it's actually revising its operational characteristics so that it can do the best it can given those conditions. So it, this is complicated science, and for the most part, uh, science, scientists like me have been very ineffective in translating it to, to clinicians mm -hmm. on a level in which they can truly understand uh, 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 what it's all about and how it applies to what they're doing as they sit there with a patient in front of them that they're trying to help. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, so what neurological disorders, if, they, if this was translated, I guess, more effectively, um, does brain plasticity have the most potential to be used in? Well, we're, we're trying to use it in a wide variety of ways, and we have controlled trials, and we have a number of FDA studies under, underway in the United States and, and, and studies elsewhere. And, and, and it's a little bit difficult to talk about because it's so complicated, but let me just let me talk about three or four categories of, of patients that we've applied it to, are applying it to with substantial success. Well, one of the things that we're trying to do is to delay the onset of problems when we expect great problems, the onset of neurodegenerative disease, for example, to be in a person's uh, future. So uh, there are several examples of that we've studied. We're training people that have Huntington's disease, and we're trying to, to recover them, them to functional normalcy or something closer to functional normalcy, and we're trying to keep them there. So that they never go, they never advance into the into the in the expression of the disease in the end stage. What we, when the when the when the physical pathology begins to change, and what ultimately is a catastrophic sort of avalanche of changes. So, and it, there's a strong indication that we can drive people into a far safer, to a safer and normal position. We still don't know for sure because, of course, 
we don't know how long we can keep people in a effectively in a in a positive position and safe. But all indications are that we can have a major impact on their life and extend their effective, useful life very significantly. In the same way we look at the onset of of, of senility or senile dementia, we're very interested. We absolutely believe that we can delay the onset of senile dementia by training the brain in ways that recovers and, and, and assures sustained brain health. Increasingly, we're thinking about driving changes that we interpret as changes that are, are translated in terms of indices of brain health. Uh, for example, we know that we can drive uh, strong changes in the cognitive performances of individuals that reflect a difference in their, a, a rejuvenation in their lives of somewhere between 10 and 20, in some instances more than 20 years in their effective cognitive or neurobehavioral status. We also know that we can train individuals in relatively simple ways, intensely for relatively brief periods of time, a few tens of hours, and we know that we can have very long-enduring positive impacts on their brain health. And so we believe that the future, in the future, we'll be able to keep people, you could say, in a brain-healthy state over substantially longer periods of time. Uh, we're also studying this in people that have had variously have variously injured brains. So, for example, we've demonstrated now that we can quite reliably, in most individuals that are affected with with in, in stroke, with something like let's say hemispatial neglect syndrome, we can train the individual in a way in which this this problem is um, is is minimized and and and, and uh, is no longer. Uh, identifiable as a problem for them. We have been demonstrating in studies that are ongoing that we can accelerate recovery from traumatic brain injury or concussion by forms of brain training. And then there's a whole variety of individuals in which the brain is poisoned or the brain is infected or the brain is uh, compromised in a variety of other ways. Uh, and we're conducting studies in which we demonstrate that people that have had brains that are infected or people that have had brains that have been poisoned uh, basically recover their competencies much more rapidly. And then we've applied this in a substantial number of psychiatric illnesses, again with, a, with an interest both in prevention in trying to increase resilience in somebody at risk to collapse, maybe back into depression or collapse into schizophrenia, when they're showing the early signs of the illness. And there the target is prevention, and there's a strong indication that in a substantial proportion of individuals with such problems, we can, in fact, delay and probably prevent recurrence of these or the onset of such problems. And then we've been treating the active patients by training. And again, we've demonstrated not only can we improve their, their, their abilities, improve them very substantially beyond what any drug has been demonstrated to show uh, 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 by training them, but we've also been able to very substantially improve their quality of life, and in, again, in a way that is not really matched by the application of, uh, of any, any pharmaceutical strategy. So, uh, you know, this is a very complex business, uh, and the science is very complicated, and the outcome things that we've measured are very complicated. But suffice it to say that there's a, there's a very, very large body of practical translational work underway that demonstrates that this is going to be part of the clinical practice approach to helping people
with almost every imaginable class of neurological and psychiatric illness, not so far into the future. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Potentially this doesn't apply here, but one thing I wanted to ask is whether the efficacy of these um, sort of training schemes um, is related to locality within the brain. It's a great question, and a, and a related question is, is how broad the training has to be in brains that are substantially disturbed or distorted because sometimes the training can be relatively simple but but addressing problems that apply in one clinical condition in another clinical condition it can be incredibly complicated Uh, so for example one you can drive very dramatic changes in most of the operational characteristics of the brain uh, by training the person in, in uh, you could say, different aspects of visual and, 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 and auditory or language-related behaviors and, and, uh, and uh, using uh, different uh, special stimuli in visual and auditory domains. You can have very strong, broad impacts on brain health by training in either domain or in training of, 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 of them in, in, a, in an integrated or serial way. If you look at any particular human condition, it's common that you have to address different dimensions of the problems that they have by by different aspects of training. So training can be quite complicated. When you train someone with, with uh, chronic schizophrenia or a first episode schizophrenic, as an example, where the neurological changes are very, very, uh, very broad, uh, the training that we need to apply to drive strong effects it commonly extends into more than 100 hours of time yeah. of intensive training with the individual in front of a, of a computer. On the other hand, training someone in a way that would help them overcome something like hemispatial neglect following brain injury, we have very strong effects that can be achieved within 10 or 12 or 15 hours of training. And even individuals with very severe problems can be substantially, the condition can be substantially remediated. We've done, ex- we've done experiments in animals in which we looked at about 20 physical, chemical, functional characteristics of, in, in, in cerebral cortex. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then we looked in animals that are near the end of life. We looked in two different ways. We looked in animals in the prime of life. So I have a young, vigorous animal. The primary model we've used has been the rat. Now I look at an animal near the end of life, expected to die not so many months forward, and we look at these 20, more than, more than 20 characteristics, and we say, well, how, how many of these things are different in the animal near the end of life versus the, the, the prime of life? We've done the same classes of experiments in the other direction. We've, we've given, you could say, rat babies terrible early childhoods, mm. and now their brain is distorted and disturbed and limited in all kinds of ways. And now we look at those same 20 things in the brain of those animals grown up. Now, they're, they should be in the prime of life, but they're not. Everything is degraded. Mm. Okay. And now, now, now it, 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 so in both of those populations near the end of life, we're struggling. In the, I've had a terrible early life. I'm struggling. My brain is struggling. Everything is different. All 20 things are different. And now we ask, by specific forms of training, how many of these things can be driven back to the prime of life condition? How much, how much of the, these changes I'm witnessing, all of these physical, chemical, functional things, how many of these can be driven back to the peak performance period in, in, in a brain? Brain is operating as effectively as it can be. And the answer is, in both populations, everything is reversible. So, for example, you can look at something like the speed of processing in the brain. 
very sluggish in the old brain. Mm. You train the brain in a relatively simple way, and what you see is, is that it's recovered to the performance characteristics that apply to the brain in the prime of life. You can look at the you can look at something like the receptors that are controlling and there's a chemical index of change that are controlling the subunits of receptors that are controlling excitatory inhibitory processes. They're changed in relation to how the characteristics or operational characteristics have changed in the old brain. They're all recovered uh, by training. And now you have the receptor subunit composition that you expect to see in the brain of an animal in the prime of life. So, you know, in a sense, our challenge is to try to understand how to achieve this in, and demonstrate that we have achieved it in human populations. And to a very large extent, that's what our research is about. It's demonstrating that we can achieve this and that we are achieving this in human populations. Look out for part two of this interview coming soon.